0: Welcome back to this study of church history presented by Dr. David Stafford. This presentation will go through the history of the church founded by Jesus Christ on the mountain. As we finished up last week, we did cover Nero as we were beginning on the um, Roman Empire, and we talked about how that the Roman Republic was formed, um, and over the course of time when the Roman Republic became weak, that Gaius Julius Caesar took control of the Senate and created, if you will, the Roman Empire, and of course it was controlled by a secession of um, emperors, and at different times there were multiple emperors in the Roman Empire. Sometimes there would be two, sometimes there would be as many as four. And as we go forward in looking at the Roman Empire and talking about some of these, um, it's important to remember that the Roman Empire was often divided up in east and west, meaning Rome and then Constantinople in the east, but also it would be divided up into more smaller regions with one emperor kind of being the head and kind of the most powerful, and the other three um, oftentimes just following suit in what he said or what he did. And sometimes they would have three or four emperors and they just fought amongst each other. So there's really no rhyme or reason. It kind of had to do with um, who the last emperor was, how he, whether he died, uh, of natural causes or whether he was killed and they divided up the empire depending on those circumstances really kind of determined how many emperors there were in the Roman Empire. After Nero there were a several uh, at least one I think there were two um, emperors in between Nero and Trajan. Um, I know Uh, Domitian was in there, but we want to focus a few moments of time on Trajan, and we're going to uh, try to go through these, not hurriedly, but we're going to try to get some progress made tonight. Uh, Trajan was emperor between 98 and 117. Um, He was a little bit more lenient than his predecessors with Christians. Um, He still supported the persecution acts, and he still supported the persecution of the saints, but he kind of adopted a don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, As long as you weren't out here trying to proselytize the public, and we didn't know you were Christian, you could be Christian and we're gonna leave you alone. Uh, That was basically his stance. Orchard, and I'm gonna read you several quotes out of different books today and this is out of orchard's history of the baptist and it says trajan accordingly commanded that christians should not be sought out that no notice should be taken of anonymous accusations but that if parties were formally accused and found guilty they should be put to death if they obstinately refused to sacrifice to the gods this persecution extended as far as syria and palestine There, Simeon, who was bishop of Jerusalem, the successor of James and a relative of the Lord, after cruel scourging, died a martyr's death on the cross. Ignatius, also the bishop of Antioch, after an audience with the emperor, was by his command sent in chains to Rome and there torn by wild beasts. So Trajan was still very brutal to the Christians, but as long as they were mild in their proselytizing, he would let them go. Now, once again, he lots and lots of things that happened to um, Christians during this time that are just unfathomable, because if they were found out, And it was proved that, yes, they were definitely Christians. They still sought the same punishment or uh, received the same punishment that was under uh, Nero and previous to Trajan. But basically, if somebody just came in and said, J.C. Cox is a Christian, and that was all that they had to give, they wouldn't go and get him. Previously, the only thing that had to happen was someone had to accuse you of being a Christian And that was pretty well sealed your death, and you were gonna die or spend the remainder of your life in some sort of a prison. Um, Orchard continues to say that under um, Trajan's rule, this is a quote, females were tortured to uh, to make them criminate each other. But while on the rack, they say, we are Christians and no evil is done amongst us. It was a regular custom at this period for Christians to meet together for divine worship, to sing hymns to Christ, who was worshiped as God almost throughout the East, to exhort one another to abstain from all evil and to commemorate Christ's death, to observe the first day of the week, which was regarded by all Christians. So even though they were still at risk of being persecuted, These early Christians in the first century continued to worship. They continued to meet. They continued to try to spread the gospel, even though they were told you can't. And just like we said the other day last week, it is difficult for us to imagine a time when you're told you can't talk about Jesus in any shape, form, or fashion or else. And even though these people were... Doing something that they knew could cost them their life, they still had enough boldness in Christ to continue spreading the gospel. Um, Marcus Aurelius was the next, um, was one of the um, emperors here that was a little bit more rougher than Trajan was, but the next one we want to talk about is Severus. Symptomus Severus. He was emperor from 193 to 211. Um, He, at the onset, when he became emperor, was a little bit more friendly to the Christians than what his predecessors were. One of the reasons was because um, Severus became sick, and in his household was a slave that was a Christian, and this christian slave had helped nurse him back to health and he was impressed by this individual's um, love for humanity the meekness and the um, just passiveness that this person had for someone that was their master even though they were sick so when he first started out he was a little bit more friendly to them he wasn't as harsh but politics started playing a part and um, we're going to read here from kurtz kurtz k-u-r-t-z is how he spells his name uh, talking about uh, severus and how that he changed But political suspicions or the extravagances of the montanist changed this position he forbade conversion to christianity and in Egypt and North Africa, persecuted again raged. In Alexandria, Leonidas, the father of Origen, was beheaded. Pothamania, a virgin equally distinguished for purity and beauty, suffered the most exquisite tortures and was then to be given up to the gladiators for the vilest purposes. The latter indignity she knew to avert but she and her mother marcilla were slowly immersed in boiling pitch. Basalides, the soldier who had been commissioned to lead her to martyrdom, himself became a Christian and was beheaded on the day following. Not less searching and cruel was the persecution in Carthage. Perpetua, a lady of noble descent and only 22 years old, with a babe in her arms remained steadfast despite the entreaties of her father, imprisonment and tortures. She was gored by a wild cow and then dispatched by the dagger of a gladiator. Felicitas, a slave who in prison became a mother, dispatched equal constance and suffering." So he changed his opinion, mostly because of political pressure and there was at this time such a conversion of christians that the establishment i.e the pagans began to worry about what was going to be the end result of this jewish jewish sect that calls themselves christians so that's the reason we begin to see the persecution heighten because they wanted the empire to remain a pagan institution and they were afraid that if these Christians were given opportunity to show other people their love for humanity their humility and the humbleness that they interacted with each other that their own established religion might become endangered Um, violence was continually on the heels of these Christians And under Severus in the 3rd century, from 193 to 211, right in there, we see such heinous actions as they would go in, someone would be accused, they would take them. They really didn't have a trial because once you were accused in this time with Severus of being a Christian, you were automatically guilty. And they would think up of the most horrendous, painful, and just gross punishments for these people. I mean, when you think about that, they would tie them by their feet, put them on a line, and gradually lower them in burning hot pitch. Now, pitch, of course, is like tar. It's a thick, black substance, and when you heat it up, it is just like, consider as you are frying something in a Fry Daddy, and you drop that in there, as soon as the chicken nugget, if you will, hits that oil, it begins to burn. Well, that's kind of the same thing that they did to these people, only they were still alive. They were living. When they were lowered into these these big vats of burning tar, they were tarred, and then if they were still living, they were beaten, they were uh, just unthinkable things that they did to these people. Um, Albert Henry Newman, in his Manual of Church History, does a very good job of explaining Severus's reign and the things that were going on that the Roman government was doing to Christians. Now, there was also another political element to this. There were a number, uh, there's no way for me to give you how many but accusing someone of being a christian became a very good way to get rid of your political opponent okay and severus began to use that and if there was someone that was in the empire and in the government of the empire that he felt could threaten him he would accuse him of being a christian and then that person would be killed Now the person probably had no interest in Christianity, but simply because they threatened Severus, that was the worst thing that they could possibly do to that person was to accuse them of being a Christian and then them be executed in the way that they executed Christians. The gladiators, it was very common for them to take these people when they were um, captured or arrested, if you will throw them to the gladiators, and the gladiators would just basically play with them like a cat with a mouse until eventually they killed them. And we're talking about living human beings that people paid money and would come to these coliseums and these arenas to watch other men kill them when the only thing that they had done was profess Jesus Christ. Caracalla, and I I will tell y'all, I spent some time this afternoon on the internet looking up each one of these um, emperor's names so that maybe I can pronounce them a little bit close to what they're really supposed to be. Caracalla was after Severus in 211 to 217. Um, He was the son of Symptomus Severus, and Caracalla and five of his successors gave little attention attention to the budding new religion of christ but that did not mean that they were not still the attention of people who hated christians caracalla again from orchard caracalla was mild in his measures several emperors following in rather hasty secession whose clemency admitted of an increase of professors in the doctrine of the cross Many persons in the employment and in the public office of government professed the Christian religion. Privilege also was increased to them, and several provinces were considered favorable to Christianity. While these tolerant features existed in the government, the profession of Christianity was considerably extended. But at the same time, its character was not that enjoined in the New Testament code. All right, let me stop there. Do y'all understand what he just said? We're seeing under Caracalla that there is a little bit of an acceptance of Christians, air quote, Christians. But what he's saying here is that their religion was not that that was was taught in the New Testament. So already in 2.11 to 2.17, the christianity that they were allowing to be practiced wasn't this christianity but it was the catholic form of christianity so from a very very early time we already see the government taking up with the catholic persuasion of christianity not the Old Testament style, oh, I'm sorry, the New Testament style of Christianity that was established and set up and instructed by Christ. At the close of this age, we may discover the expiring orders of the gospel of the gospel worship in the extinction of that simplicity which characterized apostolic institutions. So once again, we see that the government, Rome only allowed that Christianity that was Catholic to be. The other Christians, the Christians that were following the New Testament practices, that were having simplicity of church services, having simplicity of the gospel, they were still not allowed to practice their Christianity they were still called atheists. That was the term that they called them because they said they were without God because they worshiped one God and not the many gods of the Roman pantheon. So they were still, even during these times of laxity and persecution of the Catholic bodies, the real Christians were being beaten, killed, bald, raped, pillaged, All of the terrible things we can think of was still happening to them. Decius Trajan was an Italian soldier. That is 249 to 251, following after Caracalla. He was an Italian soldier and he was raised to the throne by the Nubian army after the Battle of the Goths at Verona, in which Philip lost his life. He seemed to have had an earnest desire to restore the empire to its pristine order and vigor. The fact that Christians, and this is reading from Newman, skipping around in this quote, the fact that Christians had been especially favored by the predecessors probably led Decius to suspect them of disloyalty to himself so his caracalla and these quick secession of emperors before decius actually kind of came back and haunted the christians because when he became uh, emperor and he grew to power he assumed that since they were not um punished and they were not persecuted Well, they had to have been in league with his predecessors and those that were opposed to him. So simply because they had not been persecuted, he assumed they were against him and he persecuted them even harder. In 250 was issued the first imperial edict aiming at universal suppression of Christianity. So in 250, Rome outlawed the worship of christ completely okay so you see this wavering back and forth you have nero who hated christians you would have a little bit of leniency and uh okay we'll let you as long as you don't tell anybody and you're not proselytizing we'll let you be a christian and then no you can't be a christian we're going to take your lands and then well it's okay and now it's a Hard fast, we're done. They had had all, the Roman Empire had had all they wanted to have with Christians, and they decided that they were going to stomp and stamp them completely off the face of the earth with Decius Tra- Trajan. Christians everywhere were required to conform to the state religion, and they were required to practice in its ceremonies, to offer sacrifices and officials were commanded under heavy penalties rigorously to enforce the requirement. You remember when we did the crash course in the Montanists, and we were talking about how that the leader, especially a, a novation, he was very cautious of people who did this, who gave up Christianity and would sacrifice or would give at least a pretense of being a pagan, He said, don't let them back in the church right off the bat because they need to prove themselves. Well, these are the persecutions that led to that. This is the time frame that this is going on. The flight of Christians before the expiration of time allowed was not hindered, but the property of fugitives were confiscated, and death was the penalty of returning. So he gave them a short period of time and said, okay, You've got this amount of time, if you're going to be a Christian, to leave the empire. And if you don't leave, we're going to kill you and confiscate your lands. If you do leave, we're still going to confiscate your lands, and you can't come back. All the influence and machinery of the imperial government were employed to prevent laxity on the part of the officials. The magistrates were enjoined to use special severity towards bishops and other influential leaders. So if you were a preacher and you were caught, your punishment was even harsher than someone that was just a member of the church and professed Christianity, or someone that just professed Christianity. So if you were ordained a deacon or uh, 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 an elder within the church and they knew that you were a deacon or an elder in the church, they made sure that the punishment and the torture that you experienced was extremely lengthy and was extremely painful. Now, I don't know how you get a lot more painful than boiling you in tar, but I'm sure they had ways of doing it. And it is... Heartbreaking. And I I debated when I was writing notes for this and going over this. Uh, I will tell you there's not a need today here for us to go into details of how these people were punished. A, in mixed company, I'll just tell you the truth, it's not appropriate. But I would encourage you, if you are interested and you want to truly be brokenhearted to go and read these histories, particularly um, Martyr's Mirror, Fox's Book of Martyrs, either one of those will give you a very good idea of what happened to these Christians during the Roman persecutions. Um, Heart-wrenching stories, even at this time, of babies being torn from their mother's womb and just cast aside, just... Terrible, terrible things. Diocletian was 284 to 306. Things did not get any better with Diocletian. He not only followed the previous emperor's forbidding of Christianity, but he issued the Persecution Act of 303. And it stripped all Christians of all rights in the Roman Empire. So if you were a Roman citizen, and remember that citizenship was something that was for a very small population of the people. Lots of people lived in the Roman Empire, but true citizenship was limited to the most powerful of people, okay? Um, It was almost like an inheritance to become a Roman citizen, But not only did he forbid them to worship but he took it a step farther and said not only are you not going to worship but we're going to hunt you out and find you even if you're doing it in secret nobody is uh, very much aware of the fact that you're a Christian if we so much as hear a rumor of it we're going to find you And you're not going to be a christian anymore because you're not going to be alive basically in just what he said dowling quoting here for three centuries after the ascension of christ his disciples were exposed with but few and brief interventions to a succession of cruel and bitter persecutions and sufferings the pampered wild beast kept for the amusement of the roman populace fattened with the bodies of martyrs of Jesus in the amphitheaters of Rome or of other cities of the empire. And hundreds of fires were fed by the living frames of those who loved not their lives unto death. The other thing that occurred during these persecutions um, was that you recall a saying that some areas, or in reading in one of those quotes, there were some cities and some areas in the Roman Empire that pretty well entire towns had been converted to Christianity. Well, the leadership there, whether it be a regional governor or whatever the leadership was that had control of that area, they were threatened with their own lives. You will not let Christianity be tolerated within an area that you control at the risk of your own life. So they were forcing, even if there was a leader or a regional governor that was um, compassionate and had compassion upon the Christians, they were trying to prove to them that you don't have a choice. You are going to persecute them, and you are going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And to a great extent, that's what they tried to do. And even those that previously had been, um, would turn a blind eye to the Christians because of the way and their demeanor, under these persecutions, when they were the hardest, they didn't have a choice. Well, they had a choice, but they loved their own life more than they loved the truth. And they made a decision to go ahead and persecute them. Now, that is a very quick rendition of the persecutions. And Fox's Book of Martyrs mentions 10 persecutions. We covered about six of them very hurriedly. Because the end result of those are basically the same thing. If you're a Christian, you're going to die. And even when we read it and we say that the Roman government was lenient... Well, the end result was still the same. All right, if we don't, if it's not blatant, we're not going to look at you, but if you get an accusation, you're still going to die. And then we get to Constantine. And I will tell you that Constantine is a mixed bag. The world will tell you that Constantine changed, the, changed Christianity in a way that it has never been the same, and that's absolutely true. He did change Christianity in a way that it's never been the same, but they mean that he changed it for the good, and in all reality, he didn't change anything for the good. But what he did, and what we're about to see, and what we're starting right here with Constantine is when the Catholic Church begins to court Rome in a way that's going to lead to a marriage. And not only is it going to lead to a marriage, but it leads to a birth. And we'll get more figurative with that language when we get in here. The stance of the Roman Emperor in regard of the Christian Church changed with Constantine. Now, the story of Constantine is one that most of us have heard in school or you've seen on TV or you've heard. Constantine was getting ready to go into a great battle. Constantine was a pagan, first off. And Constantine said that he saw a fiery cross in the sky with words written that said, By this sign you shall conquer, depending on who you read and what translation. That phrase changes, or by this sign you conquer. And he saw this and he interpreted this vision that he had as meaning that by accepting Christianity, you will conquer and become all powerful and the greatest Roman emperor ever. Now, the cross that he saw was the key row. Now, key is C H I, Chai, but it's pronounced key and then the row and i believe it is on your sheet there the key row you still see today with the catholic church this is one of their prominent symbols is the key row because they consider this key row as one of those symbols that changed their destiny and it absolutely did how Constantine became emperor was that first off, he too was in the military. His father was a very powerful governor and his father helped to elevate Constantine through the Roman Empire. Um, he first gr- uh, grew to power in Britain. Remember that the Roman government had already taken over the British Isles. Um, you will remember in history of Hadrian's Wall, that you had these people in the northern part of the British Isles that refused to be under the subjection and rule of the Romans. They would constantly send down and uh, wreak havoc upon the Romans in England, and they built a wall in order to keep the heathens up north from coming down. And that's Hadrian's Wall. You can look it up and learn more about that. Um, By 324, Constantine emerged as being the sole ruler of both the Western and the Eastern Empire. So under Constantine, he had gained so much power and control over the army that he was able to become the sole emperor. Remember I told you sometimes they had two, sometimes they had three, sometimes they had four, Constantine was powerful enough, basically, to kill anybody that um, tried him or that was a competitor of his, and he was it. In Rome, he was the man. Okay? Um, So he looked up, he saw the key row, and Constantine took upon himself a title that was traditional for emperors of the Roman Empire. And that title is Pontifex Maximus. And what the title of Pontifex Maximus means is that he was the high priest of all religion that was worshiped in the Roman Empire. Okay? Now y'all stick that in the back of your minds because we're going to come back to that. Pontifex Maximus. The title was the traditional title of all of the emperors, and it meant that he controlled the temples, he controlled the priests, he controlled the money, and everything about religion, he had the final say, simply because he was emperor. In 313, Constantine in in Licisianus, forgive me, of issued the Edict of Milan. Now, remember in 324 is when he becomes the sole emperor. In 313, there are still two. The Edict of Milan stated that the act officially decriminalized Christianity. Okay? So now we're back swaying where Christianity is Okay? So 313, Edict of Milan, all of a sudden it's okay to be a Christian. It's okay to be someone like a Baptist, right? No. Still, even though Christianity was made legal, the Christianity they're talking about is the pomp and circumstance Christianity that is developing very rapidly during this time. Constantine made the practice not only legal, but he also criminalized the Donatist of North Africa. Now, you remember that I, when we had that course the other night and we ran through that so quickly, we talked about the Donatists and North Africa, and I told you that out of everybody that we've seen, this is the easiest and the best example that we can say, these people most likely had it the majority of them well one of the first things that they did when they uh, legalized christianity was that they said but you can't be a donatist so you can't believe in a simplicity of the gospel you can't believe in not receiving the baptism of the catholics and we're going to see very soon that they made that illegal that if the catholics baptized someone and they joined the Donatist, and the Donatists, what they would say, rebaptized them, that was illegal, a crime and punishable by death to both the congregation and the minister that immersed the person that had Catholic baptism. OK So that was very specific on what was legal, and that was not the purity of the gospel that they made legal. The Donatist had absolutely rejected the faith of the Catholics. And you remember that we said that one of the big rubs that the Catholic body had with them was that when Carthage would send out its preachers and go into a Donatist church and demand to preach, the Donatists said, we don't care who you are, you're not of us, and you're not standing in our pulpits. So all the way back into the 300s, we had a purity and a protection of the pulpit in the true Baptist churches. Now, these Donatists would preach all over the place, but they wouldn't let someone from outside their community, outside their churches, preach to their people because they knew what they were preaching. They knew that they were preaching heresy. They knew that what they're preaching was not true. And they protected the sanctity, bad word, but it's the best I can get, of the pulpit and didn't let them in. And the Catholic um, metropolitans, the bishops of the big churches, this absolutely ran them raw. They were absolutely infuriated that this small group, this small little church out in some holler somewhere, wouldn't let my preacher stand up and preach. So these metropolitans were constantly complaining to Rome that these little hillbillies, basically, won't let us go in there and preach, and they are spreading like wildfire, and we need you to do something about it because they're threatening our existence. We need them gone. Now, the other thing that the Donatists did that infuriated the Catholics was they would not baptize babies. And when you joined a Donatist church, they required you to give an experience of faith. You remember we said it was very clear, even in the Catholics' writings about the Donatists, that they required a time and a place before you united with them. Well, guess what? So many of the Catholics didn't have a time and a place. They were taught baptismal regeneration. They'd been dunked, but they didn't have a change of heart. They didn't have a spiritual indwelling of Christ because they had never been saved. So when they would hear these other Christians, as they called the Donatists, they were insulted because they didn't have, the Catholics didn't have what those Donatists had. They didn't have that spirit. They didn't have that indwelling and that connection with God that the Donatists had. Now, the interesting thing about the Donatist in baptism is that the Catholics continued to receive the baptism of the Donatists. But the Donatists would not take the baptism of the Catholics. So basically what they said was, if you want to leave that group, you come on, we'll take you just like you are. And the Donatists wouldn't go the other way. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us exactly what we've been arguing the whole time, that the Catholics were taking in anybody, any way, regardless of what you believe. As long as you were willing to say you were Christian, you were willing to have baptism of some type, and you were willing to pay the coffers, you were okay to be a Catholic. But the Donatists had strict regiments of this is what we require, just like we do today. Now the Donatists were severely persecuted because Constantine decided that as emperor and as Pontifus Maximus, that he had a right to intervene. Since this group was refusing to recognize what he called the Christian Church, the Catholics, he had the right and the authority to intervene. And in 317, he passed an edict ordering the confiscation of all Donatist property and that all Donatists be exiled from all cities. He wanted them punished he wanted their property taken away and he also wanted their preachers to be arrested the thought was if we arrest all the preachers they can't spread well still not true because even their church members just like today can share their experience and share what they know about christianity And this little religion that was hated by both Rome and the church continued to exist no matter how hard they tried to eradicate it. After 325, Constantine called a church council. And this is the first council, well, really it's the second, um, if you consider a council in the... In the Old Testament, okay, maybe Catholics say that Pentecost was the first council because they all came together. I don't buy it, but they would claim this was the second council, okay? It's the first one, all right? So Constantine calls it. First off, Constantine, according to the Catholic Church, is still not a Christian because he's never been baptized, all right? So he calls the council and he uh it's the first council of nicaea and nicaea is located in what today is turkey Um, and remember here's the other thing i want to say remember that constantine moved the capital of the roman empire out of rome and he moved it to constantinople okay so a because it was more mid-center of their lands and he had more control of the army if he was in Constantinople rather than Rome. He calls this, and they invite 1,800 bishops or pastors to attend the session. Okay, There were 250 of them, maybe 300, that showed up. Now, I want you to imagine this. They're in this big hall, and you have all of these preachers that are lined up, These preachers are not from the Donatists. They're not from the minority. They're not from those churches that are um, practicing the truth. They're Catholics, and they're gathered together here. And this meeting is presided over by Constantine. And the description of this, what happened is pretty clear. It's written in lots of places, several firsthand events. They had this, and they described Constantine. They said that he was um, kind enough to let the preachers or the pastors of the churches to enter the room first. He was kind enough to let them do that. So all the preachers come in, and then he came in last. Well, basically, he came in last so that he could make a show, in my opinion, because when he came in, he was wearing flowing robes of purple. Remember that purple is a sign of royalty. Purple was an ink or a dye that was made by the Phoenicians. It was very expensive, and you had to have lots of money to afford purple dye. So he comes in with all of these purple dyes uh, or purple robes, and they were adorned with precious jewels eusebius however you pronounce his name describes it as when he walked in and the sun was shining into the room that he glittered or glowed from all of these jewels picking up the light that he had on now that's a far cry from the humility of christ and you also have this religious meeting being headed by a pagan emperor. Even by the Catholics' own beliefs, this man wasn't a Christian because he had never been baptized. But he is heading this council of what they said was God's people. So they came in, they began to uh, debate several things, the regular churches absolutely refused to go and their response and their argument when they were presented with why weren't you there was what does the church have to do with rome and what does the emperor have to do with the church what is caesar's baron to caesar's and what is god's baron to god okay absolutely right they could see the writing on the wall that Constantine was wanting to take control of this religion, and he was wanting to make it what he wanted to make it. And so it even further infuriated these people that were trying to keep purity, and they said, no, we're not having anything to do with it. Um, Through the midst of the assembly, there was several things talked about. The council made 20 new laws okay so this is the first time that we see this group of churches getting together as a body in realizing that hey if we control the churches we can just make doctrine and that's what they did okay they prohibited self-castration established a minimum term for the catechisms, meaning that if you were studying to be baptized, they said you have to be studying for X amount of time. They prohibited the presence in the house of a cleric of a young woman. So in other words, if you're a cleric, you you can't have a prostitute living in the house with you. Was basically the complete gist of what they were saying because it was rampant, still rampant today. Ordinations of a bishop had to be at least within the presence of three provincials and they had to be agreed upon by the metropolitan. So, the metropolitan of that area, before any church could ordain anyone, the metropolitan had to approve that ordination. So once again, they took all the authority out of the local body, and they put it with that metropolitan. Provision of two provincial uh, meetings to be held annually. Exceptional authority acknowledged for the patriarch of Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. So you remember at the beginning of this, they said there were five. Now we're down to three. And before long, we're going to see that shrink again. Recognition of the honorary rights of the Sea of Jerusalem. Basically, they said Jerusalem is where Christianity started, and they have honorary rights. They had a provisional agreement with the Novations. Now, here's the deal with this provisional agreement. It was an agreement, but it was an agreement made by the catholics not by the novations and basically what they told them was that it was a list for the churches that if someone from a novation church shows up to you this is what you have to do before you can make them a member of the catholic church um, they also set provisions of how that those people that uh, renounced christ during the persecutions how you receive them back into the church. They prohibited the removal of priests. This is still in effect today. All right. Once you are ordained a Catholic priest, you are always ordained a Catholic priest. Not even the Pope can take that away. You can be defrocked, which means you can't practice ordination. You can't practice being a priest, but you're still a priest. Uh, They also said, if a priest borrows money from you, you can't charge him interest. All right. Now, do you see all of these things have benefits to their own? It's self-promoting. A precedence of the bishop and the presbyters before deacons when receiving the Lord's Supper. So when they had the Eucharist, or Holy Communion as they called it, the priests got to go first, the presbyters, which are ordained, got to go second, and after that, the deacons got to. So y'all were last. The deacons got to go last. But the priests were more important, and they got to take of the Eucharist first. They also invalidated all of the baptism of the Paulusian heretics, which we're going to talk about. So they said, their heretics, we're not going to recognize any of their baptism. They prohibited kneeling on Sunday and during Pentecost. Um, at this time, it was considered most appropriate when praying to pray standing up. Not sitting down, but standing up and not kneeling because they felt kneeling was most appropriate during um, low holidays that are, uh, uh, I think low is the correct word, if not, excuse me, but those holidays that were um, solemn, that were repent, based on repentance, those days you knelt, all the other times you stood up, okay? And what we see here is for the first time, this Catholic group of people no longer using the Bible as their rule and guide of practice. Instead, they're using their own decisions as rule and guide of practice. Now, the true church has one source of scriptures, the Holy Bible. It's their rule and guide, deciphered and interpreted through the Holy Spirit, Right? Well, they've done away with that and said, whatever laws we make, whatever canon decrees that we pass, that is it. And these councils that they begin to have are the final word on all things Christian. Now, going back to Constantine and the Donatists, What happened was he set up such a persecution of the Donatists that the Donatists, and we touched on this the other day, but they began to move rapidly. Because if when they'd come into a town and they were found out and they were persecuted, they would pack up and they'd move to the next town. And what we see is a sect that had been basically around Carthage in North Africa, that all of a sudden spreads all over the lower portion of the Roman Empire. Why? Because of persecution. And when we look through our history, the harder the persecution was, the more rapid they spread. And a big part of that was just by the, well, first off, of course, by the grace of God. But secondly, because they would put them on the move. Had they left them alone they would have probably sat there and not been as wild spread, but when they began to persecute them and they began to disperse, it just propagated and propagated and spread, and what was in one locale had spread out all throughout the southern portion of the Roman Empire. Now, the other thing that they did that is important at this Council of Nicaea, is that they established a hierarchy within the Catholic Church. Um, What Constantine told them was that he wanted the Catholic Church to resemble his government. Now, under the Roman Empire, you had the emperor, and then beneath the emperor, you had varying levels of leaders you had regional governors you had territorial governors and then you had governors over small what we would consider counties maybe if you will and they went down the line so you had someone way up here that had all the power and then the power diminished as you went down the line of people in this hierarchical form of government that was the roman empire He wanted that same form of government to be replicated within the Catholic Church. And that's what he did, because he controlled the Catholic Church. He was the Pontifex Maximus. So, at this point in time, Rome is riding and holding the bridle, Of the catholic church okay because rome constantine is telling the catholics what to do all right keep that in mind so he established you would have patriarchs which would be the ones over um, rome alexandria and antioch then you had archbishops bishops canons and on down the line you would have uh, priests and you'd have deacons and you'd have yokemen and on down the line of their hierarchy of their priests and their clergy. And that mimicked the Roman government. Now, the other thing that came up was Constantine posed a question to the Catholics. And his question was this. If baptism is what forgives me of my sins... If you baptize me today, what happens with my sins that I commit tomorrow? And there was a huge list of debates on what the answer to that was. They said, well, you're." they would just kind of beat around the bush and nobody could give an answer. So Constantine said, okay, here's what I'm going to do because nobody could answer it to Constantine's satisfaction. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you right before I die, you need to come in here and you need to baptize me, because I know that if you baptize me today, there's going to be lots of things I do that I shouldn't do after today. Well, that's exactly what they did. So Constantine is older, he's sick, The priest comes in, they realize that he's not going to last that long. So they lift him off of his deathbed and they baptize him, thinking that that was going to cover his sins. Baptismal regeneration has never saved a single soul and never will. Unless Constantine had an experimental experience of salvation... Constantine is in hell, period. That baptism on his deathbed did him no good. It wasn't baptism, first off. It was just they dunked him in water because the people that were dunking him had no authority because most likely they weren't saved either. So they just dunked him. But that question of what happens to my sins after I'm baptized is debated for nearly a hundred years before they come up with an answer. And we'll cover that a little bit later. So Constantine dies, and the Roman Empire begins to experience a vast, huge change. First off, the empire was passed to Constantine's three sons. So we went from having one central emperor, Constantine, to once again dividing up the empire and having three emperors. It was Constantine II, Constantineus, and Constans were the three emperors. And these three emperors' children, sons of Constantine, had their father's love of power and greed. They set off on a battle and a war amongst the three of them, to see who could kill the other two and become the sole emperor. All right. Uh, Let's see. Constantine II was killed in an attempt to take the Western Empire by defeating his brother Constans in 340. Constans was assassinated by Magnetius in 350 and Constantinus refused to accept Magnetius as his co-ruler. And so Constantius defeated Magnetius in the same year. So this made Constance II, Constanius II, the sole emperor of Rome. So basically they just killed each other until one of them was left. Okay? A real Christian attitude. And I know that sounds kind of blunt, but these are the people that are over the Christian church. Of the Catholics. Okay? Now through this secession, the Catholics remained protected, but those outside of the Catholic Church that claimed to be Christians once again were not protected. In 316, Constantius died and left the empire to Julian. And Julian was well educated. Um, he was a traditionalist, and not only was he a traditionalist, but Julian was a pagan. Julian is the last pagan emperor of Rome. And he decided that all of this trouble that has come upon the Roman Empire, the reason that we're having trouble and infighting and everything is falling apart is because of the Christians. So, once again, we, the pendulum goes to the other side and he closes all churches and he restores the pagan religion as being the foremost religion of the roman empire now julian wasn't able to hold control for very long and in when he falls the catholics once more rise to power okay In 377, the Roman Empire, um, we already did that, condemned all the churches. No, that's right. In 377, the Roman Empire condemned all sects of Christianity, all denominations, if you will, of Christianity except the Catholics. Now, This is after Julian has died. They made it illegal to rebaptize anyone that was baptized by Catholics once again. And in 379, Theodosius I rose to control the Eastern Empire and Gratian rose to control the Western Empire. Both Theodosius and Gratians were Catholic. They were very devout. And on February the 27th, 27th, 380, they enacted the Edict of Thessalonica and it made the official religion once again of all of rome in all the roman empire the religion of the bishop of rome and alexandria and we see something occurred this is the time that if you talk to other people they will tell you that the catholic church began well I propose that the Catholic Church had long since been going on. But this is the time when the Roman Empire unites itself and weds the great whore of the Catholic Church. The two of them become completely entwined at this point. This is the last time that this will happen, because from here on out, the Catholic Church is stated is a state religion in most of Europe. Even today, the Catholic Church is the state religion of Italy. Every Italian pays a tax today to su- support the clergy and the Roman Catholic Church. Today. Still do it. And a good number of other states and countries in Europe still do that. Okay? Emperor Gratian or it was a relatively weak emperor and he did something that changed the power of the metropolitan or the patriarch of Rome. <coughs> Remember that I told you that every Roman empire was the pontifex maximus of all religion within the empire. Well, The Emperor Gratian gave up that title and gave it to the Bishop of Rome. And we see the Bishop of Rome becoming the Pontifus Maximus. That means Supreme Pontiff, which is his official title today. Okay, where did that come from? It came from right here. That title meant that you were the high priest of all pagan religion. And the Pope carries that title today and claims it all the way back to the Roman Empire. So he even claims to be the high priest of pagans. And I'm going to say something pretty bold here, but that's what he is. He's the high priest of a pagan church and not a Christian church. The other thing that began to happen here, well, uh, let me back up and say this. I use the analogy that the Roman government, the Roman Empire, married herself to the Catholic Church. The Roman Empire married the great whore. Here's their child. Out of that relationship between the Roman Empire and the Catholic Church, the Pope was born. The Pope that controlled the Church, and at this point in time, we see a change in the relationship between the Church and the state. Previous to this, we said that the state, Constantine, had a hold of the bridles of the Church and was directing her. After this point in time, it flip-flopped. Now, the church, the Catholic church, the pope, the bishop of Rome, had a hold of the bridle of the Roman government and was controlling it. And that power absolutely made her drunk with just the blood of saints okay in 385 Priscillian, the pastor of a small group of devout believers living in roman hispania which means it was in spain was charged and convicted of sorcery and executed by emperor maximus one of the major charges against Priscillian was the practice of prayer and meditation outside the church They continued to make laws and they decided and said that there is no prayer outside of the Catholic Church. There is no Christianity outside of the Catholic Church. And they began, if you preached, teached or spoke anything contrary to Catholic doctrine, you were executed. They had that much power he encouraged his followers to retire in solitude or in bands for prayer outside of the United Congregation. So he said, when we get together on Sunday, you, when you go home, you need to continue in prayer. And it's good to go into your closet, shut your door away from the world and pray to God. And it's good when you're with other brothers and sisters and well-informed brethren to bow down and to pray. Well, brothers and sisters, that's gospel. Right? But that was illegal. It was illegal because the Catholic Church said it was illegal. And they executed them. Now, this little sect of the Persillians, I will tell you from what little I've read of them, they're probably not like us. They probably were a Reformed group. I doubt that they had scriptural baptism. But it shows the hostility of the Catholics to anything that was outside of their realm of control. And this is one group that they basically wiped them off the face of the earth. They were gone by the 4th century. Okay, 430 they have another council at Ephesus and they set it up because there was a growing dispute among the Catholics and uh, Emperor uh, Theodosius II called this one, 250 men show up and the controversy revolved around Mary. And the question was, was Mary the mother of Christ? or was she the mother of God? Okay? Now, let's think about this. We know that Mary was a woman just like every other woman had ever been. The sins of humanity has passed through the male gene. That's why Mary was, could be Jesus' father, but he could not have an earthly father. I mean, could be... Jesus' mother, but Jesus could not have an earthly father because sin is passed through the male gene, okay? And yes, Mary was the mother of Jesus. She bore him in her womb for, you know, I've always been taught that it was nine months, but now we don't talk about months, we talk about weeks, and I know I'm no scholar, but if you add up all those weeks, it's a lot more than nine months, but anyways she carried this child she gave birth to this child and yes she was the mother of christ okay she was his natural mother she gave birth to him she is not the mother of god god existed before the foundation of the earth jesus as uh, as god existed before the founder of the earth even in the birth of jesus she is only the mother of the man part of christ christ having of course this is a huge debate in itself christ having two natures the nature of god and the nature of man right she was the mother of his fleshly body she was not the mother of jesus god the third part of the godhead okay now i don't know if i made that clear enough but i hope maybe y'all are with me they met and they decided that no she's not the mother of his flesh she's the mother of god and gave birth and carried god that's a heresy flat out a heresy and not only is it a heresy, it's just plum idiotic. God was in existence before the foundation of the world. How could Mary be God's mother? It makes no sense. But they adopted it as doctrine. Okay? And this was the beginning of what we call Mariology, which is the love of Mary. And they begin to elevate Mary every time that they have a council. She becomes a little bit more and a little bit more prominent. Today, Mary in the Catholic Church is a mediator for your sins. There's three, I think, maybe more. But last time I checked in my reading, there are three mediators that the Catholic Church teaches. Jesus... Mary and John the Baptist, three mediators. My scripture tells me that there is one mediator between man and God the Father, and that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is our mediator. He is there and he is constantly bearing our prayers to God the Father in being not only our mediator, but our advocate with the father pleading our case as the human race but they began to elevate her and they even go so far as to call her the queen of heaven now here's the question why why well the answer is the catholics had to appeal to the pagans The pagans were used to worshiping female idols, goddesses. So in order to bring in the pagans into the Catholic Church, what did they have to do? They had to give them a goddess to worship. So they did, and they took the work of Mary and made her an idol so that they could draw more people in and make the Christian their Christian religion more palatable to the pagan society. Now, we're going to see this time and time and time again. And I'm going to get on my soapbox here, and y'all know y'all have heard me say this. Some of you get sick every December of hearing me say it. But the reason that we have Christmas... The reason that we have Easter, the reason that we have Good Friday and all of these holidays is not because the Scripture tells us to have them. We have them because the Catholics adopted it in order to appeal to the pagans. Those are nothing more than pagan holidays redressed up and sold as christian in order to get people in the door and i warn all of us to remember that and to keep those holidays in their place i've heard people say all the time and i make people mad every year i know when they say we need to keep jesus in christmas christ in christmas i understand this the sentiment but jesus never was in christmas because their whole idea was not to advance Christ, but was to advance their numbers. That's just fact. But even us, as God's people today, get wrapped up in the idea of these pagan holidays that the Catholic Church has sold us on, and department stores have sold us on, To be a part of now if you go by my house today you're still going to see my Christmas tree in the window okay it's still there it was still there last October because I never took it down from last year okay I just slid it over in the corner so I'm not telling you not to have these traditions but what I am telling you is don't think that you're serving God by practicing christmas because you're not it's pagan it is not a christian act okay now that always offends people but it's true and there's no way around it it's true voletian who was the third emperor with um gratian and um Theodosius or whoever the other one was, it slipped me right now after I got on my soapbox there. Um, In June 6, 445, he declared the Bishop of Rome the primacy of all Catholics. That's another one of his titles today. He is the primate of Catholics, meaning that he is the primary teacher of all Catholics. We'll talk about soon how that he even goes as far as in the 20th century, they declare that the Pope is infallible, meaning that anything that he says is gospel, that anything that he says and decrees is above the scriptures. Well, they made it code then, but I'll just tell you the truth, they'd been doing it for a thousand years before that, okay? So, Volition also, in order to justify giving this power to the Pope of Rome, said that it was through the bishopric of Peter, okay, that the Pope gets his authority. All right? Now, a couple of things. And first off, if you go back in history, Peter was not the pastor of the Church of Rome and peter had no more authority or no more right to anything than any of the other apostles and we've already talked about a couple of weeks ago about petros and petra and that he was a small rock and jesus was pointing out from the very beginning hey buddy don't get the big head i'm building this church on me jesus okay But we see that this, once again, gives more power to the bishop at Rome, and he begins to take the name Papa, meaning Father, meaning that he was the father of all the Catholic Church. And he is still there today, and he is still writing governments, and controlling them, and holding that bridle. I have read accounts that in Europe, in South America, that are heavily Catholic, and the Pope will take these tours, and he'll go down, and he'll visit their leaders, and he sits down, and they will tell you in news articles today that he will present them with a list of things that he wants done and their government. Now, if you are Catholic and the Pope tells you, I want you to do this, you're going to do it because why? Because all he has to do is say, you're excommunicated and in your own religion, you're going to die and go to hell. That's how much power they have placed in this one man. Now, I will be very blunt and clear. In one week, we're going to actually talk about the issues within the Catholic Church. But I am 100% convinced, and it would take a whole lot to change my mind, that the Catholic Church is a seat of the devil. It is the spirit of Antichrist. It is a mockery. It is a counterfeit church. What they did or what Satan did was he took weak-minded and weak-backed men and he caused them to err and... Well, he didn't cause them, they chose to, but y'all understand what I'm saying. He led them or encouraged them into taking up with doctrines that he was able to perverse in such a way to make it look like they were of God when the whole time they were of the devil. The world doesn't like it. And I promise you that if you were very vocal in the world today, outside about the evils of the Catholic Church, people would accuse you of hate speech. They would accuse you of being a bigot. And they would accuse you of being everything under the sun except telling the truth. But you know what? It doesn't take someone with an elevated genius level IQ to just look at the news and see that what the Catholics do is 100% contrary to that word of God. It does not align. And this is where we have seen the birth of... Formally of the Catholic Church. She has been there almost from the beginning. As soon as Christ organized the church, basically the devil was right there wanting to make a duplicate copy of her to draw in the world and make them twofold more a child of the devil. If you can convince, and I am trying to quit here, and I'll try not to preach a whole sermon, if you can convince lost humanity that they are okay, you'll never win them over. And that's what he does. The devil has taken these counterfeit churches that made them look like they were of Christ, and he convinces convinces lost people that they're okay. And then they go and spread their heresies, and constantly, right after the other, growing exponentially, People become twofold more a child of the devil because they not only are lost, but they think they're okay, and it's just mind-boggling how, in three hundred years, now you've got to give the give the devil a little credit, and sometimes we don't give him enough in our own lives. He is a wily little devil, and he will make things to confuse you in a heartbeat. And we, as God's people, have to be constantly on guard and watchful and try the spirits that what we're doing and what we're saying and what we're professing coincides with the Word of God and not with something of man. Anything on anyone's heart before that we might be dismissed. That finishes up the Roman emperor's And we will quickly do the fall of Rome and get started with um, the Dark Ages. Almost got to where I wanted. Anything on anyone's heart, any prayer requests or anything you need to say. Thank you so much for your attention. We hope that you have enjoyed it. Um, I think next week we can cover most of the Dark Ages, probably about half of it um it, it's uh it's going a little slower than what i would like but at the same time if we speed up anymore we're going to skim it out so y'all bear with us i know that we most of you are very much eager to get into the uh united states and england and those modern more modern era we're getting there anything else on anyone's harder minds before we might be dismissed if not those of you that are seated If you might stand, we'll ask Brother Bubba, if he would, to pray the benediction. Thank you for listening to this episode of Church History. We'll talk to you next time.